Well, please turn with me in Holy Scripture to the Gospel according to Mark. As we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark, today we come to chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Mark 1, 9 through 13. Open your hearts now with faith to receive the holy and inspired word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would speak through your Son and by the Holy Spirit to your people here assembled, and help your servant now to speak only those words which are in conformity to your word, and which will build us up in our most holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Everyone seeks approval. Everyone. Even people who say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me, they really do have a paradigm in their mind of someone that, if they encountered them in person, they would change their behavior in order to get their approval. And in fact, wanting someone's approval is one of the most powerful motivators that we have. You can change your whole, whole persona if you run into your hero. Or if you encounter a celebrity that you've seen on television. You change everything about yourself because you, you want to be liked. You want their approval. You don't act like yourself. And if you doubt that then ask someone who knows you well. Ask your spouse if you act differently when you're around somebody that you want, to, you want their approval. It changes uh, who we are and how we act. We want people's approval. We don't want to look foolish. We want to be accepted. It's a powerful force in our hearts. Have you ever uh, tried to gain God's favor? Of course you have. That is the, uh, that's the, the fallen human impulse is to try to gain God's favor in our own way. And in many ways, this can be even harder to see in ourselves than when we're trying to curry favor with someone else, some mere person. And it's harder to see because trying to gain God's favor looks very devout on the outside. And so we cover these bad motivations and this, this trying to gain the favor of God with all kinds of external uh, religiosity and obedience, trying to get him to look upon us with favor. It's a fool's errand to do that because God sees to the heart. He knows what is in our hearts and he can see past all of that external and false piety and devotion. What are we to do then? Because we must have the favor of God or we're, we're in big trouble. So what are we to do? Well, in our passage today, we arrive at two of the most astounding episodes in the earthly life of our Lord Jesus. And through these episodes, 
we learn that our approval comes from Christ alone. Your approval in God's sight, dear brothers and sisters, comes only through Jesus Christ. And it is an approval, it is a favor that enables us to withstand the dark temptations of this world. In other words, because Christ has been approved by God, we may find approval as well. And because Christ has withstood temptation, we also through him may withstand temptation. What does this all look like? We're going to look at this by focusing on three different aspects of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You'll remember that that's how this gospel opens. The beginning of the gospel, that is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're learning three things in particular about this Son. First, He is the obedient Son. He is the obedient Son. This passage communicates that Jesus is the obedient Son that the Old Testament was always longing for and speaking of and telling us about in shadows and in types. Even the phrasing in verse 9, in those days, points us in this direction. If you've read the prophets, especially the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Zechariah, when they're talking about the new covenant that was to come, they say, in those days, in those days there will, there will rise up the branch of Jesse, that's Jesus, and so forth. All kinds of other prophetic images referring to Christ. In those days, and Mark tells us, in those days, Jesus came. He is speaking of this son that the Old Testament was always speaking of. Well, what has finally come to pass in these days is that the obedient son has arrived. The scriptures developed this idea about an obedient son from early on. Kids. What was the Exodus all about? Do you remember the Exodus story? In the book of Exodus, God's people are enslaved. They're in bondage. They're in chains in Egypt. And this wicked king, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has bound them and is is, uh, making their lives more and more difficult. And the people of God are in slavery. And God spoke to the Pharaoh through his prophet Moses And here's what he says to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This is God speaking, and it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve me. Is he talking about one Israelite in particular? No, he's talking about the nation of Israel, collectively. That's my son, God says. And you've enslaved him. And now it is time for you to let him go that he may come and worship me at my holy mountain. God saved his son out of Egypt and gave him his law. That's Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments and the book of the covenant with all the other ceremonies and, uh, and, and laws of that covenant. That Israel, God's son, might live before the face of God obediently and reverently and worshipfully. Did they do that? Uh, Well, in fits and starts they did it. But a lot of times their worship was actually idolatry. They received this law as the son of God, this corporate son of God. And Israel rebelled time and again. They worshipped a golden calf in the wilderness. 
Aaron, who was to be the priest of God, fashioned a golden calf and said, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt. See, isn't he great? It's wicked and absurd idolatry that the people committed against the Lord their God. They did not obey God as they were called. Israel was not the obedient son that God had called him to be. And they would look for ways to regain God's approval and to look for his favor, but it would never last long. One cycle after another of disobedience and rebellion and God reaching out to them in grace, restoring them, giving them what they need, only for them to fall into sin again. The Lord brought them to the promised land and he gave them kings and he found a man after his own heart, David. And God made a covenant promise to David. Speaking of a king to come, the Lord said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be to him a father. Speaking about David's son who is to come. God says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. This one who will come from your line, David, will be a son and he will be the king and I will be his father and I will treat him as my son. But David himself and all of his sons that came after him and the line of kings that followed failed to obey the Lord. They were not the obedient son. Not not in the, the, the truest and most ultimate sense. Israel consistently failed to to live out this calling, to be the obedient son of God. Brothers and sisters, their story is our story. The story of Israel is the story of all human beings writ large for the whole world to see that we cannot obey God as he has commanded us to do. Their constant disobedience is the huge parable that speaks to the world We have fallen. It speaks to the world that we have a terrible problem on our hands. That the holy God has commanded us to obey his law and we can't do it. Their condition is our condition. And, you know, that's not a popular teaching. But all it takes is for you to open your eyes and look around. Are people inclined toward righteousness? Do you need to teach a child to disobey and to be selfish? No, that's right. Amen. That's right. No, you don't. You have to teach a child to obey. And you have to constantly teach a child to obey. We have to teach ourselves as adults to obey, don't we? This is why we have to have uh, criminal justice. And we have to have those who restrain people from uh, committing heinous acts of wickedness. That's why we have criminals in jails and all. The, the whole justice system exists because we sin. You're inclined toward evil. And the Holy God has commanded us to obey and we just won't do it. Not for long anyway. Not for long. We, we don't stay on that path for very long. We look for his approval. And, and in wanting that approval, in wanting to have guilt taken off of our shoulders then perhaps there will be a certain uh, measure of outward obedience for a time to gain his approval. We want him to like us because we don't want to face his judgment. We don't want to face the guilt and shame that attaches itself to our sin. But we struggle deeply with pride. We underestimate the allure of sinful pleasures 
and we think that we are immune to wicked ideologies. Sometimes we just think that, well, I'm baptized, I go to church, and therefore I won't think bad things. I won't uh, embrace wicked ideas. That's not the case. We are inclined toward wickedness. And it is very difficult to acknowledge it and very difficult to see it. And so with Israel, with the people of Israel, we long to hear that word of divine approval that we hear in Psalm 2 and in our passage. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. That is that divine approval, what theologians sometimes call an approbation. This divine approval that the people of Israel were wanting so desperately. And that God in Psalm 2 was foreshadowing would come when his son came. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. We want that approval, but our disobedience constantly gets in the way. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ is that beloved Son. He alone is the obedient Son. He alone. And here He is in the Gospel of Mark, suddenly appearing. The Bible tells us something about how to read itself, sometimes based on how a character appears in the story. Here He is. He hasn't been named yet, except now in verse 9. He's been spoken of in kind of... uh, of uh, sideways manners as uh, one who's mightier than John the Baptist um, as the son of God earlier on uh, and he's named as Jesus Christ in the very beginning in verse 1 but in terms of the narrative beginning now he's named and suddenly he appears in those days verse 9 Jesus came and he came from Nazareth of Galilee which is like the sticks by the way This is a no-name place. And it's so no-name that it has to be identified by its larger region. Oh, that's in Galilee. It's like when you go go visit some other place and you tell them you're from Madison or from wherever you happen to be, maybe uh, Scottsburg or or even out more in the middle of nowhere in New Washington, and people say, where's that? It's in Indiana. (laughs) That's all I'm going to tell you. Jesus came from Nazareth. Nazareth. That's in Galilee, by the way, in case you were wondering. He came from nowhere. The first of his many humble acts of obedience. A no-name guy who comes from a no-name town and submits himself to this mission and calling of his father. He alone is worthy of the approval of God the Father. Well, what is that approval? What is that approval? What does it mean and what does it mean for us? He is the obedient son. Now we're looking at the son approved. The son who receives the approval of his father. Jesus' baptism leads to the divine voice speaking and giving that approval. There's a few things to point out about this baptism. The first is that it is a significant moment in the history of redemption. Look with me at verse 10. We read, And when when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Two main actions are highlighted in this verse. A coming up and a going down. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down from the heavens. 
to signify to us that in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, heaven and earth have collided. The heavens have been torn and God has now come down. He has answered the cries of his people who said, oh, that you would just rend the heavens and come down and take care of all this mess. And here he is. Jesus Christ is baptized. And as he comes up, the spirit comes down. It is a significant moment in the history of redemption. It's also a triune baptism, a Trinitarian baptism. Although Jesus came specifically to receive John's baptism of repentance, by virtue of his dignity and worth as the Son of God, Jesus transformed this uniquely Old Covenant baptism into the Trinitarian sacrament of the New Covenant. The Son was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended and the Father spoke. And in this public demonstration, our triune God is on full display. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is also a substitutionary baptism. Substitutionary baptism. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that Jesus is doing this on behalf of others. As a substitute. As a stand-in. What is so stunning about this episode is that Jesus is undergoing a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. That's what John's baptism was for. You can see that in verse 4 from our text last week. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Meaning it's a baptism for wicked people who have come now to repent. To turn away from their sins and to turn to the Lord. But Jesus undergoes this baptism as the obedient son. Which means, brothers and sisters, that his baptism in the Jordan demonstrates his identification with sinners. His voluntary willingness to come and say, I will come to you and identify myself with you. Though I am of infinite value and worth, I am so mighty and of of such infinite dignity that John, that great old covenant prophet, says, I'm not worthy of him. And Jesus comes and undergoes a baptism To identify with you. Jesus had no sin. But he came and he stood in the place of people confessing their sins. This is what Jesus will do throughout his ministry in the gospel. And especially on the cross. Is identify himself with you. And stand in your place. He is the infinitely holy one. And he goes to the cross. As an image of our wickedness. That he might take your sin upon his own shoulders. His life and his death are for you. The reason why the father chooses this moment to speak his word of favor upon his son. Is not because he just now is beginning to love his son. No, he has eternally loved his son. But he speaks this now publicly to the world. Because Jesus' baptism reveals the gracious mission of God to rescue sinners. And this is indeed well-pleasing in the sight of God. And so Jesus hears the words of approval. He is baptized. The Spirit comes down. And the Father says, You are my Son. And you are well-pleasing in my sight. 
Brothers and sisters, if his baptism is on your behalf, then so is this approval. This divine favor is for you. But you see, it's not on the basis of you doing anything good. Because you can't earn the favor. It is on the basis of this obedient Son of God who has come now to rescue us from our sins. And God is infinitely pleased with Him. And through Him, He is pleased with us. You are united to Jesus in baptism. The Apostle Paul says this clearly in Romans chapter 6. You are united to Him. You have been baptized with Him into His death and His burial and His resurrection. And through union with Jesus Christ, this favor, this approval from God the Father belongs to you no less than it belongs to His obedient Son. That's the treasure of the gospel, is that God now treats us as though we are His own beloved Son. And He will treat us like that forever because Jesus Christ has done what needed to be done. He is the Son who has been approved. And us now, by faith, we become approved in Him. Lastly this morning, Jesus is the Son tested. He's tested. He's obedient. He's received that public demonstration of God's favor. And now we see Him tested. Christ's baptism in the Jordan River is a glorious and celebratory event. But notice in verse 12 what follows. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit that was at work in his baptism is the same Spirit who now brings Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, to be proved. Mark narrates this in a unique way from the other Gospels. Uh, First off, you'll notice that we don't actually see any of the contents of the temptation here. You have to look at Matthew and Luke to see what the devil was saying and what the temptation consisted of. Mark here in his characteristic brevity uh, and with his speed, immediately he drove him into the desert. He gives us a synopsis of what happened here. And in doing so, he tells us something unique. He gives us his unique perspective about this uh, temptation in the wilderness. He describes this trip to the wilderness as Jesus being driven out. That's different from the way that Matthew and Luke talk about it. He's cast out like Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Like Israel was driven out of the promised land and into exile. Verse 13 we read, And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. Our Lord is reenacting the trials of the Israelites. Whose disobedience landed them with a forty year sentence in the wilderness. Walking around for forty years. And now Jesus is recapitulating, reenacting. That history, that sordid history of the Israelites here in the span of 40 days. And just as the Israelites faced that deep test, that time of proving, that time of trial in the wilderness. So Jesus now goes to that same kind of place 
to be tested. Here's the pertinent question for us to be asking about this passage. Does Jesus' time of testing in the wilderness demonstrate that his father no longer loved him? In other words, was, was it a, a short-lived approval? It was, uh, it was, everything was good there in the Jordan River, which was already in the wilderness, by the way. So he probably did not travel far. And now immediately, the father's angry with him, and so he sends him out to the wilderness to be tested. Is that what's going on here? Uh, the answer is most definitely no. The son who was driven into the wilderness to be tested was still indeed the well-beloved, well-pleasing, and baptized son of God. And has never been without the favor of God and cannot possibly be without the favor of God, even in the wilderness. And this means that trials and temptations are not inherently a sign of God's disapproval of you. And it certainly does not mean, trials and temptations certainly do not mean that God has withdrawn his love. Instead, when we submit our trials and our temptation and our times of testing and suffering, when we submit these things to the Lord by faith, He uses those same trials to prove His love and to prove our faith. I'm speaking about that old way of proving. Uh, by, by testing, you prove the value of a, of a precious stone by putting it through the fire. We've seen this before. How do we come to know in that experiential knowledge of the Proverbs that we learned about? How do we come to know on that level the love of God and the assurance of our faith in Him? We come to know it in the wilderness. That's where He proves that that divine approval can withstand anything. And so can your faith, not because there's anything inherently valuable or strong about your faith, but because it's come to you from God as a gift of the Holy Spirit. When Mark wrote his gospel, first century Christians were facing significant persecution under the Romans. Nero was uh, the um, Roman emperor at this time. And Christians were finding out what it meant to bear witness to Christ with their lives. They were becoming martyrs. They were uh, bearing witness by their lives and their deaths to a hostile culture that Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is no other Lord that is on the same footing with Him. Not even close. Mark's account of the trial of Jesus in the wilderness speaks to this very terrible situation for Christians. Um, there's an interesting detail here in the, te- in the text in verse 13. And he was with the wild animals. Even though this is the briefest of the accounts of the temptation of Jesus, that's an extra detail that Mark puts in there that Matthew and Luke don't put in there. The, uh, the animal, animals in the wilderness, uh, especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, symbolize deep danger. Because you're out in the middle of nowhere. You know, when the people of God in the, Old, in the Old Testament would disobey God, and sometimes he would send a plague 
there's a plague of, of fiery serpents in the book of Numbers, for instance. That's such a dreadful uh, curse and punishment because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go when you're out in the wilderness with wild animals. And here, Jesus is said to be not just in the wilderness, but with the wild animals. He's out there in that place of utter danger. And some scholars think that this is a, a particularly poignant detail to point out to Christians who would have at this time been fed to wild animals. Because Jesus identifies himself with sinners. We saw it in his baptism. We see it now in his testing in the wilderness. He has compassion on those who are going through the deepest darkness. The worst possible horrors. He was out with the wild animals. Let Satan do his worst. You are still the children of God. You are still the beloved children of God. Well pleasing in God's sight. The devil may and does inspire terrible ideologies and cultural movements. He does. And these things sometimes lead to Christians being marginalized. This has happened for 2,000 years. We have ups and downs in the Christian life. And uh, historically, Christians have not always fared well when things change, when times turn against uh, religious freedom or against, in particular, the teachings of the Christian faith. It's even led during particular times to that extreme end of martyrdom. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. Brothers and sisters, let the devil rage. Let him rage. You still belong to God. You are hidden in Jesus Christ. And if by faith you belong to him, then you cannot lose the approval of Almighty God. It is that divine and legal declaration that you're his no matter what the devil does. You are still the beloved children of God. And as surely as Jesus heard that divine approval, you are my son. So surely has that same declaration been given to you in the grace of justification and in the grace of adoption. That spiritual adoption by grace through Christ. The devil is a roaring lion. That's true. That's true. He's the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. He is always seeking to make, to, to cause someone to make a shipwreck of their faith. It's true. But when it comes to the gospel and to the proclamation of the gospel, he is bound and he is powerless. The word of the gospel, this message about forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life with God and to dwell with God as he is our God and we are his people. This word of the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And this word of the gospel comes to the weary and it comes to the tested and it says, God loves you. Not in that sentimental way as just a mere platitude. Anybody can say that and everybody, everybody does say it. But the gospel gives you that sure foundation to hear this word that God loves you. Sinner and wretched though you are, loves you as, as he loves his own beloved son. He, is, he loves you on this basis of Christ being the perfect and obedient son and granting to you that very status if you would but trust in him. 
In every trial, your Lord is with you. No trial is in vain, not a single one. If we would offer it to God in faith and submit to it as part of the discipline of the covenant of grace, that we might grow up into maturity as the sons and daughters of God. No trial that you face is in vain. You've been sent into it by the Holy Spirit. He has driven you there. And God provides for your needs through that same Holy Spirit and through His holy angels as, he even, as they even minister to the Son there in the wilderness. Loved ones in Christ, we, we don't know what the future holds for Christians. In this country, in the Western world, around the world, we don't, we don't always know what it holds. We should not be surprised if our faith suddenly becomes a pariah just completely. It's already halfway there, perhaps more than halfway there. We should not be surprised when our faith, our confession of faith and our practice becomes more and more a stench in the eyes of the world. Don't be alarmed, but take heart. Stand firm with with Christian courage, not to go and overthrow anything except your own sin. That's what we're putting to death is our own sin. We instead stand firm. We hold fast to our confession of faith. We love, we pray for those who are persecuting us. We pray for our enemies. We ask that the Lord would show us his favor in experiential ways. We ask for the conversion of those who do not yet believe. But whatever the trial looks like, and no matter what temptation we face to be alarmed at a culture that turns against us, your Savior is with you. He is with you. During bouts of deepest dread, Look to Jesus Christ, who has faced all the rage of Satan's hatred and all the terror of the cross, and he's done it for you. It's done. And through him you have the favor of God. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if you are looking for the approval of God this morning, do not look any longer. It's yours by faith in Jesus Christ. He alone is the obedient and approved Son of God. And this approval is your everlasting possession through him. It is through our union with this substitute that we forever hear the comforting words, You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. So stand firm in these evil days. Don't be afraid. Wait patiently for the Lord to prove his love and to prove his faith. Your Savior is certainly with you. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we plead with you now by the Holy Spirit to write this word upon our hearts. Help us to obey what it commands and to believe heartily what it promises. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.